When your dice need to level up. When you rise from the last war. When that dude has two swords, holy sh**, that's awesome! That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Lennon, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ostron. And I'm Ryu. And this is the 86th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, August 24th, and released Wednesday, August 28th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ryu, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's adventurers pack, Ostron is going to make Lennon cry again. And honestly, I've got some tears coming too. Next, we check out some D&D news as we bring you everything we know about the recently announced Eberron Rising from the Last War. After that, we'll take a short rest and dig up some unearthed Mundana on actual two-weapon fighting before finally heading over to the scrying pool to see what you have to say. And that takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurous packs. Do you always carry this much in your bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need this stupid roll for! So, Lennon, when's the last time you took a mortgage out on your house? I rent so never. Ah. All right, well, you're out of luck then. So, one of the things that comes up quite often in discussions about D&D isn't what character are you building, it isn't what's your favorite class, it isn't are you looking forward to the next module, it's, hey, what kind of dice do you have? So, if you've got a regular set of single color acrylic dice usually you get a pass because you're probably new at this uh if you've got some of your standard acrylic fancy dice i'm really sorry to tell you that you're very far behind the times now if you've got a regular set of metallic dice you're doing a little bit better but you're quickly falling behind so you need to catch up quick because the most recent craze with dice in tabletop role-playing games is going in two directions. One is heavy metals, the other is what are being called gemstone dice. And conveniently, there is a single location where you can find all of your needs to fill those requirements. Level Up Dice is a company that is based out of Australia, and they produce what they themselves call luxury dice and dice accessories. So when you go to their main page, they have a bunch of different collections of dice available that you can sort through. They include semi-precious stone dice, which will have dice made out of things like amethyst, onyx, hematite, and a few other rocks that you would normally see in precious stone collections. They have glyphic dice, which are regular acrylic dice, but they have more stylized and fancy labeling on them for where the numbers or other symbols are. Uh, They have true stone dice, which are dice that are still made of some sort of stone, but they're artificially fused together to get fancy patterns over trying to keep them pure in a particular rock. Uh, They have aluminum dice in various different shades and styles. Then they have heavy metal dice, which is where you go if you want your dice to be made out of something like tungsten. And then they have some of the more esoteric options that have still been around for a while, such as wood or bone. In addition to all of their dice offerings, they also are a reseller for various other options. Like they have several accessories for dice put out by Wormwood. Uh, They also have some art and other items from places such as Firebear Armory and Hippocampus and a few other things. They also have their own branded line of clothing, which includes some dresses and skirts for the ladies, as well as some more generic 
regular shirts. Uh, so, as I said, this site, if you are looking for specialty dice in any of the categories that I previously mentioned, this site offers what in my experience has been probably the largest variety of options if you're looking for something to buy because their semi-precious stone options have three pages to choose from and there's about 15 to 20 options on each page. Uh, their aluminum dice pages are roughly the same number and they have multiple different options such as they have multicolored aluminum, they have single color aluminum, um, and they also have a variety of different font styles on the dice. Some are done more clearly to look like uh, sci-fi type lettering, whereas others are more traditional fantasy script writing. And then they even have some odd dice that are available. Currently I only see one, but in their miscellaneous category they have dice that are called stealth dice. And what those are, are you roll them and they look just like normal dice, except at first glance they won't have any numbers on them. In order to read the actual value on the dice, you have to shine a black light over them to get the numbers to appear. I'm not exactly certain what the practical use for those would be at D&D or really anywhere else unless you want to play a really, really competitive and difficult version of craps, but they're available if you want them. So those are all the upsides. The downsides you can probably guess at at least the first one. These are not cheap. All of their aluminum sets, for example, start at about $135 a set. Some of them, if they're more simplistic, drop just below $100 to $95. Their semi-precious stone dice vary depending on which stone you choose, but a full set of seven polyhedrals is probably going to run you $80. And if you just want the D20s, you're probably looking at 25 to 30 dollars a pair this is all in us dollars by the way for those who weren't sure because they are an australian company but they do put the prices in us dollars um, apart from the price another issue is that they seem to frequently be sold out of some of their items particularly in the precious stone range they list that reason as being some of the precious stone dice are actually hard to create as a geologist can tell you, some of the stones that they actually pick to make dice out of are a little bit brittle, or they're very prone to crumbling, so it takes a little bit of extra effort to put the dice together. Speaking of, that brings me to my next point, which is a friend of mine bought several of these dice sets and happens to be gaming in a group with another friend of mine who has a geology degree. And he said that in some cases, though not in all cases, the stone that they mentioned some of the precious stone dice are made out of is not actually the stone that you're getting. It's not universal, but he was able to identify several of the dice sets that said they were made out of a particular stone. And while they certainly looked like the stone in question, at least as far as colors and patterns were concerned, if you were to take it to an actual geologist, they would tell you that it's not literally the gemstone that they mentioned. So other than that, the only other warning is more of a general warning for dice of this type. The heavy metal dice, obviously, if you start rolling them on a well-finished wood table, it is going to scratch and pit the wood like nobody's business. The same would be even true of metal-topped tables. It would probably even start to abrade felt after a while. The other thing is with, again, the stone dice, 
stone is not quite as durable as either metal or particularly the acrylic dice. So they recommend that you take pretty good care when storing the dice so they don't bounce against each other unnecessarily, and also that you be fairly careful when rolling them. They usually recommend a felt rolling tray, or at the very least one made of wood or something that's relatively soft, because the stone dice can, at the very least, abrade, so they aren't rolling equally, and in worst case, they'll shatter. But other than that, if you're looking for some more esoteric or fancier options for purchasing dice or dice accessories, this site is certainly somewhere to go and check out your options. So a few things. One, the word you're looking for is aluminium, but, (laughs) you know. Uh, Two, when you say it's not the actual gemstone, is that because it's mixed with others or that it doesn't contain the stone itself? Is it just that it's not 100% pure? I don't actually know, and I don't know that anyone would be able to figure it out without sort of breaking one apart and doing an analysis, which it's not worth doing that given how much these cost. But they actually admit in their FAQs that some of the stones don't carve out to dice shapes very easily, so they have to put some sort of a coating or fusing on them. Yeah, that makes sense. Some of the stone dice that my friend looked at they either the pattern was wrong like an actual stone you would see that sort of pattern but not at the scale that the dice were Mm -hmm. so it's probably a case of they aren't 100% pure I don't think they're trying to totally fleece people and say oh yeah this is a die made entirely out of turquoise and it's just like green glass or something like that but In some cases, the dice are probably not 100% whatever the stone they happen to say they are. Yeah. And uh, my my last point is, uh, yes, they are expensive, but the silver watermelon tourmaline set of dice, they look edible. They do. mm, Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) They really do. Anyway, sorry. Um actual dice though no these are these are really cool very expensive but really cool they are really cool i did find it interesting that on the single listing for the blue sandstone d20 it gives you an option to choose the level of sparkle that you want in your die that made me laugh a little bit yeah there's a couple that are like that where you can choose how much sparkle you want, how much um, inclusions and cracks you want, especially if you've got one of the more stony types. Now, I was looking at the true stone ones, and I really, really like the silver red imperial jasper one. But I'm going to be honest, you mentioned something about the die shattering, and now I'm scared to buy some. (laughs) Well, it it just means that, like, if you pick up a die and whip it across the room at a like solid metal wall okay so if you put effort into throwing it yeah but also like if you drop these dice in the bottom of a dice bag and then pile like nine other sets on top of them or if you store them in a dice bag with metal dice you're running the risk of doing serious damage to them just because like i said the i mean acrylic dice Acrylic is what they make billiard balls out of, and those are nearly impossible to break. Most of the metal dice are gonna break anything else they come into contact with before they themselves break. The stones that they're using, since they don't have an option for diamond dice, although I wouldn't put that past them eventually, (laughs) um, a lot of the stones that they mention are actually in terms of hardness pretty soft so you have to be i mean you don't have to be paranoid about it but you sort of have to be a little more conscious that hey this can't necessarily stand up to casual abuse okay and in talking about the accessories and artifacts that they have they have a pretty cool killer tentacle octopus display i like that 
I'm not sure that I would ever buy it, but I like to look at it. It's pretty. Yeah, the accessories are pretty cool. Um, talking about the Killer Tentacle Octopus display, though, they've got a single D20 holder, and the thing just kind of... If you can imagine, you ate, um, for North Americans, sprinkles for anybody outside North America, hundreds and thousands, and they kind of upset your stomach a bit, and you kind of pooped it out a little bit and then stuck a D20 in it. That's kind of what this looks like. I might have to also invest in one of those level-up dresses. They've got dice on them. That's cool. Do they have dragons? I haven't they looked at the dresses. They don't have pockets, though. No, there's not uh, a dragon dress, unfortunately. There are dragons on a lot of the other accessories, though. Yes, and none of them have pockets. I'm really sad. But that's a rant for another time. The dice pendants do have a couple of dragons on them. However, and I'm bringing this up because this actually is the case for me, and I don't know, I don't think I've ever actually met anybody else with the same allergy that I have. I have a metal allergy, so I have to be very careful with what kind of jewelry that I buy, and these do not list what their jewelry is made out of, and uh, I'm going to guess from the price that it's not something that I would be able to wear. Yeah, also, I get the feeling, as I said, most of the accessory stuff, they seem to be reselling things that somebody else has made. So, I noticed that. Um, They've got Wormwood dice boxes on there, too. Right. I'm guessing they don't actually produce the dice pendants. However, if you send them an inquiry, I'm sure they'll respond and let you know. That all being said, I do want to say that their selection of semi-precious stone dice is... Very varied. It's wide. Mm. It's nice. I've. Yeah. There is another place that I like to buy dice from, and their prices are a little bit cheaper, but they don't have. I think they only have about a third of the selection on this site. And that's just for the semi precious stones. I'm not even talking about all the other dice types that they have. And man, those stealth dice are really cool. I want a set of those. Links to Level Up Dice can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? Let us know about it by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. Last week in D&D News, we were given a lot of information about Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus, which was announced at D&D Live 2019. This week in D&D News, we learned more details about the second product that was announced at D&D Live 2019, the latest Eberron book. Coming our way on November 19th and priced at $49.99 US dollars is Eberron Rising from the Last War, and according to the product announcement page, contains everything players and dungeon masters need to play Dungeons & Dragons in Eberron a war-torn world filled with magic-fueled technology, airships, and lightning trains, where noir-inspired mystery meets swashbuckling adventure. The book contains, quote, easy-to-use locations, complete with maps of floating castles, skyscrapers, etc., a gazetteer for Sharn, the City of Towers. It also has a campaign for characters that sees them venturing into the Mornlands. It's got the official release of the Artificer. It's got mechanics for a group patron. 16 new race-slash-sub-race options, including dragon marks, and all the usual smattering of monsters and magic items. As with most releases from Wizards of the Coast, this looks to be part setting guide, part mechanics resource, and part adventure module. As with all other source books, you can get it with an alternate hobby store cover if you pick up a copy from your friendly local gaming store. The alternative cover features a cityscape of Shan with an elemental airship flying above the towers, with the whole thing having a gold-on-black motif that really helps to set the Eberron mood. Aside from the aesthetics, this is great because, well, to say the cover of the regular edition, which features a white-haired elf with some sort of flying fox on her shoulder, and a warforged in the lower right that's missing their galra. Sorry, where was I? Oh yeah, to say that the regular cover caused a few people to get upset would be a bit of an understatement. Luckily, Jeremy Crawford took to Twitter to clear things up a bit, saying, quote, That's not the cover. It's an interior illustration serving as a placeholder. End quote. One point to Jeremy. 
Going back to the content of the book, if you're thinking this all sounds a little familiar, well, you're right. In fact, this announcement left a lot of people confused as to what was happening with the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. After all, the Wayfinder's Guide was supposed to be a living document, meaning it would be updated with all the new rules and mechanics for Eberron. In fact, back in 2018, when the guide was first released, people were asking about print-on-demand and a hardcover version, to which Jeremy and Mike Merles tweeted that once the content was 100% finished and the artificer was added, they'd enable print-on-demand. So, naturally, people asked if it was going to be a print version of the Wayfinder's Guide, to which Jeremy tweeted, quote, Rising from the Last War is a 320-page exploration of the world of Eberron following the Last War. The book incorporates the material in Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron and adds a whole lot more. End quote. So everything from the Wayfinder's Guide is going to be in Rising from the Last War? So the Wayfinder's Guide is dead? Does that mean that effectively Wayfinder's Guide was a paid-for playtest? Minus one point to Jeremy. Well, no, not exactly. See... When asked how release from Rising of the Last War would impact those who've already bought the Wayfinder's Guide on D&D Beyond, Adam Bradford said, quote, We have 100% confirmation that Rising from the Last War will not contain everything that was in Wayfinder's Guide. They are two separate products. So the Wayfinder's Guide lives. One point to Adam. Though, that does raise more questions. If the two products are separate, and as Jeremy clarified later on Twitter, they still plan to add the Artificer into the Wayfinder's Guide, this will mean that a lot of mechanics will be available in two separate places. The confusion has actually led to D&D Beyond issuing an Eberron PSA, the links for which will be in the show notes. But essentially, Adam Bradford says that if you have unlocked the Wayfinder's Guide and Rising from the Last War changes anything mechanically, such as backgrounds, feats, subraces, dragon marks, etc., even if you don't purchase Rising from the Last War, you will always have the most up-to-date content for the things that you have purchased. In fact, this has kind of already happened on D&D Beyond when Xanathar's Guide and Term of Foes were released. These updated several spells and monsters that appeared previously in Princes of the Apocalypse. Incidentally, the same will also apply to the upcoming Tyranny of Dragons re-release. If you've unlocked the content in some way, you will always get the latest and greatest version. Further, on the Tyranny of Dragons re-release, Adam also said that any new non-mechanical content, such as the appendix of concept art that they're going to be introducing in the re-release, will be given to people who already own both Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat. So, points to Adam! Although, enough Tyranny of Dragons, we were talking about Eberron. Since the initial reveal, there have been various Q&As happening across the web, mainly on Twitter, but with a handful from Dragon Talk's D&D news segment. In no particular order, the official Artificer will be launching with three subclasses, down from the four in the Unearthed Arcana. We know the Alchemist subclass ranked lowest for satisfaction in the surveys, so it's likely that's been dropped and we're going to be seeing the Artillerist, the Battlesmith, and the Archivist. The book has nearly 100 pages on building adventures on the continent of Corvair, and that the adventure will not be an updated version of the first-level adventure from the original 3.5 Eberron campaign setting. The Goblins, Bugbears, Hunt, Hopgoblins will be reprints of the ones found in Volo's Guide, but the Orcs will be a little different, and therefore not a reprint. And finally, the Group Patron mechanic. In its simplest form, the group patron is a shared background for the party. An organization or society sponsors your group, and mechanically you'll gain benefits that reflect how your party's doing in the post-war society. The patron will also act as a quest giver, providing a jumping-off point and instant story hook for any adventures you may have planned. So, I don't know much about Eberron anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and get my thoughts out of the way. I was one of those people who was upset about the cover. And like I said, I don't even know anything about Eberron, and I was just upset about the way it looked. <laughs> so I'm really glad that's not the official one. Yeah, I have, I have, um, well, a lot of issues, but also <laughs> ones about Eberron. Say. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that cover, um, ignoring whether it's suitable art for Eberron or not, and just the fact that it looks kind of crappy anyway, what I kind of thought was really curious about it, if it is placeholder art, which means that they haven't finalized the cover yet, if it is placeholder art, they've used it on the official press release, on the Amazon listing, and on the product overview on their own website, when they have the alternative cover art. So 
I think that it probably was supposed to be the official cover, and now they're trying to wind that back. Oh, no, no, it's just a placeholder. Quickly, draw something better! Yeah. Um, no, I, I kind of get the feeling that that's what's happening there. Yeah, um, this... I mean, I don't want to cast horrible aspersions on Wizards of the Coast, but I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> I feel like this whole book has been skirting the edge of a PR disaster from right. day one. I mean, like, what are they? They are on Eberron announcements. So Wayfinder's Guide, the announcement at D&D Live 2019, and this reveal, they are three for three pig's ears on <laughs> the handling and the announcement of it. So Right, so they've got the release at D&D Live 2019 was at at best weird at worst a like slapdash haphazard accident they release the cover art and it blows up in their face and then they seem to have cobbled together a whole almost contradictory policy about this release as it compares to the wayfinder's guide and yeah that's not even digging into the facts of okay the artificer now only has three subclasses which if they drop the alchemist i feel like that's actually going to upset people because to my mind a lot of people equate artificer with the alchemy ability and if you yeah. remove that, it's sort of like, oh, well, nobody liked the way we did the Beastmaster Ranger, so yeah, the Rangers can't be Beastmasters anymore. And that would have left everyone saying, no, 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 that's not what we meant at all. Like, yeah, it's, this it's just the worst of the four, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's unplayable or that it's bad or that it needs, you know, just bump it up a little bit. Right. So I'm... Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm really concerned that this is going to blow up in their face. And also, there's th that just reignites for me that, you know, personal tinfoil hat theory that I have, which is that <laughs> Wizards doesn't actually want Eberron to really take off. And they're essentially just doing this as fan service. Right. But. I'm still of the opinion that, like most businesses, they're probably motivated by the bottom line a little bit. And I think that, obviously, a lot of this has come out from the fact that when they unleashed the Wayfinder's Guide on the DMs Guild and D&D Beyond, I don't think they expected it to catch on as much as it did and to be purchased as much as it is. It's one of the very few, I think the rank is Adamantine, um, which is like the top seller on the Dungeon Masters Guild. It's one of the very few that has actually hit that status. It's also, you know, it's something that was in 3.5, something that was in 4. So people, I think, are expecting it. And it is the sort of thing that is a bit of a... Um, I don't want to say a cult classic, because that's not exactly the words I'm looking for, but there is a very hardcore group of players, and I'm going to shove myself in this group as well, that really like the Eberron setting. And so even if you did you just... Do you really feel like you need to be shoved into that group? I'm pretty I... sure you stepped in willingly. I, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> Keith Baker said, here's the blue stuff. And I said, is this Kool-Aid? He said, yep. And I'd already drank it. So <laughs> I, I am well in to that crowd there. Yeah. Um, and I think that because it proved insanely popular on the DMs Guild, that they're now realizing that there is a market for it. Like you said, despite the fact that they probably don't want to focus on it. And I think that they would much rather do things like, uh, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, where they sort of step into new territory, but at the same time, motivated by the bottom line, Eberron is a much better seller than the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica was, and so I think that's then how you end up with all of these cross-policies of, originally, they put the Wayfinder's Guide up, and people are like, ah, we're gonna wait for official Eberron, and they're like, no, no, this is official Eberron, they're like, well, I'll buy it then, and then they buy it, and then they had to put out all these things, if we ever make a book, then we'll make sure it's 
different and we want people who buy both books to be happy and then they realize how much it sold and that they've got to do a hardcover release and that they probably don't have enough unique material that isn't in the wayfinder's guide so there's going to be a huge amount of overlap and then they have to try and honor the promises that they made when the wayfinder's guide first went up and i don't think that they actually know how they're going to handle that and that's why there's such cross messages from jeremy saying one thing D&D Beyond saying, you know, something else. Or it could just be that uh, maybe they just haven't quite got the message aligned. But either way, it has made for a very messy product reveal. Yeah, and I I think you're right. I think basically what happened is they formed an Eberron committee and put a couple of people on it and, like, stuck them in an office and then said, okay, this is taken off, make something. The Eberron committee made something, came out with it, and then the rest of Wizards as a whole is sort of playing catch-up, trying to figure out how to fit this into their main product line. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll go with you on that as well. Um, I do, just to kind of go back to the, away from the messy launch and actually bring out the, the positives in this release. Number one, I am actually really excited for this, um, even if it does reprint a lot of the stuff from the Wayfinder's Guide. I was always hoping that there would be additional print releases for Eberron, so I'm going to get it anyway. The alternative cover art, I think, and I'm genuinely trying not to be biased here, but I actually think this is one of the best alternative cover arts that they've done. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see that yet. Oh, that was the one that you commented on, wasn't it, Ryu, where you said, oh, it's the 70s. The first one... (laughs) The first one was the one that I didn't like. Oh. The one I mean, that we talked about uh, that everybody got mad about. Okay. Yeah. The alternative cover, I think, looks fine. It looks very... I'm sorry for bringing this up. I'm actually not sorry because I totally love triggering you. It looks very spacey. No, actually, that was <laughs> my first impression. It looks very similar to the style of cover art that gets used on a lot of what are called hard sci-fi novels, which on those novels, they usually have some form of spaceship that is very blocky and not like sleek or stylized or trying to look like a fancy plane in space. And it's usually over a... If there is a space station, it's very... Like, not fuzzy, but almost done in watercolor style without highlighting a lot of details. Um, Or it's a planet with a a sort of vague sense of what the planet's topography and geography looks like. And that's not exactly what they did here, but it has the same sort of feel. Like, there isn't a lot of variety in the colors. There isn't a focus on any particular races or characters. It's a setting that is both generic and very unique at the same time. Yeah, to me it really invokes like hard-boiled detective novels. That's what I thought when I saw it. Ignore the flying ship, you know, but the the general style of it and the color palette, um, which, like we said in the copy, I feel that that really does capture the, the kind of mood that they want Eberron to be in because it is a very pulpy you know indiana jones type place where you go on these uh real like uh, as ryu alluded to earlier 1970s style adventures that's the sort of thing it is it's very noir it's very um hard-boiled gritty and yeah i just really think that this whole tone of that is uh just perfect for the book but also a really nice cover in general i feel like each cover evokes a different idea For one thing, on the original cover that is apparently not the (laughs) official one. But it totally was until everyone got upset. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that I believe that, Wizards of the Coast, but that one doesn't tell me anything about Eberron. There's just a person and some kind of animal and a guy in armor that is supposed to be a warforged, but, you know, as we said... Warforged are people too. Debatable. Carry on. (laughs) I said a guy in armor. (laughs) Anyway, it doesn't... I feel like it just doesn't tell me anything about what I'm getting. Whereas the alternate cover gives me something to at least think about when I start 
delving into the setting. It gives me something to look for. Well, the original cover to me looks like the kind of cover they tried to do for Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Yeah. But the problem- I mean, it's probably the same artist, isn't it? Uh, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. The problem is that Eberron isn't an adventure module, and Eberron doesn't have, like, an overarching villain or an overarching story that you always focus on. So, apparently that was what they chose, and I have no idea what... I mean, including a Warforged in there is probably sensible, even though, according to Lennon, the particular Warforged drawing they did could possibly have been more wrong, but only if they drew a literal incorrect creature there. <laughs> um, because Warforged are sort of the most famous thing that came out of Eberron. I know a lot of Eberron people are going to debate that into the floor, but I'm going with it anyway. Other than that, there isn't a lot that evokes, like Ryu said, the uniqueness of the setting or a sense of what Eberron is about. Yeah, just to clarify my issue with that cover, um, this is on the level of um, Star Trek original series fans watching The Next Generation going, hang on, Klingons have forehead ridges? Uh, that's, you know, it's it's kind of minor, but it's also potentially a major thing. They're missing every Warforge when they're created has effectively like a sigil on their forehead, and each one is unique, and there are reasons for that, and the artwork just is completely missing it. It, it just shows almost like that they weren't paying attention to detail, which, when you're talking to Eberron fans, is a bit of a, you know, if, if there's any group of D&D &D fans that are going to pour over minute details, it's it's us lot. That's it. Yeah. And they've already had issues with that in the first Eberron adventure right. they tried to release. Yes. Yeah. And that's, it's just, it just feels again to me just like more of the same of uh like we were saying just pig's ear releases on eberron from wizards mm -hmm. but having said that like i said i am excited for it the artificer is finally being released this is our first official class since the game has actually launched how are you guys feeling about having an official new class that you know in theory would be usable in every game going forward i'm excited about it but like ostron pointed out i'm I'm kind of wary about which subclass they dropped. Yeah, I mean, we're only obviously guessing that the Artillerist, Battlesmith, and Archivist are the three that they've kept, based on the fact that Jeremy Crawford said that the Alchemist ranked the lowest. But for all we know, the Alchemist is in, and the Archivist is out. That said, I, I feel like almost the Artificer isn't new anymore, because it's been out in UA for so long, and it's, I mean, it's... D&D Beyond official at this point, so... Right. It's been at least two, three years, right? Three years? I think it's longer than that. I think um, Eberron was the first UA that they released, like the first ever Unearthed Arcana in, I want to say, 2014 that was adding in versions of things like the uh, Artificer. It was terrible. It was a wizard subclass, but they, you know, literally from the moment of the game's release... It's been around in some form. And also, uh, this uh, publication weighs in at 320 pages, which, to put it into perspective, both the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide weigh in at 320 as well. So this is going to be a hefty book that we're getting. How many pages is Ravnica? Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica is 256, so it's an extra third. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which makes me happy, so yay. Now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's stick up some Unearthed Mandana and actual two-weapon fighting. Are you sure life isn't a game? What is real? How do you define real? Uh, what's this, my mantra? The Wi-Fi password. We're not savages. Psst, Ryu, did you get it? Yeah, I got it right here. Wait, where are you? Over here. Why are you wearing a barrel? I, I learned it from playing Divinity Original Sin 2. That's special. Who switched off the lights in here? Lennon, why are you in a barrel? And Ryu, what did you just hide behind your back? I didn't break into the vault and get two swords for Lennon, if that's what you're asking. Two swords? Okay, why? Get out of this barrel. Yeah. 
Okay, well, all that talk of John Wick last week kind of got me thinking of a cool character concept I want to play, but I thought I should probably practice dual wielding first, you know, to kind of get right into the character. Um, cool. So, does anyone have a spare puppy? Okay. Well, I'll admit that fighting with two weapons is objectively cool. Whenever anyone shows up in a book, show, or movie and they're holding a sword in each hand, you know they're a badass. Or they're a squire for the badass carrying their weapons, so badass by association, maybe? Anyway, two-weapon fighting in D&D carries a lot of benefits. In many cases, it's the fastest way to acquire multiple attacks and therefore output more damage. In older editions, the privilege was limited to those who could afford to devote a feat to it, with other feats making it even better, like removing the limitation on what weapons could be used with two hands. So if fighting with two weapons in D&D is so good, there must have been examples all over the place where it happened in history, right? I mean, who doesn't love using two swords? It turns out, everybody. Everybody doesn't love using two swords. Widespread use of two weapons is only reliably documented among two groups, European nobles dueling in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and Japanese samurai. The samurai are possibly the only group that regularly employed the technique in their military engagements. That's not to say they used it often, though. Swords were normally a last resort weapon, with spears and bows being their primary weapons of war. Two-weapon fighting is possibly the most glaring example of gamifying real life. Fighting effectively with two weapons takes an extreme amount of training, practice, and dedication. Martial arts that offer training at all in fighting with two weapons usually only do so for students that are very advanced. If D&D were trying to be really authentic, no one would be able to do two-weapon fighting proficiently until level 12 or higher. The reason is actually quite simple. Most humans aren't ambidextrous. The average person is going to have far more control and finesse with one hand than with the other, and fighting with a sword in particular requires more careful control. Even when two weapons are used, one of them is usually for blocking more than anything. This is very true of the European fencing that we mentioned earlier, where the second weapon was often a short dagger with a large handguard. The dagger was almost always used for parrying. The major reason people did it with a sword rather than with a shield was that weapons were usually worn around town and so nobody wanted to lug a huge piece of wood or metal on their back all day. Another thing universally true of dual wielding is that nobody regularly grabbed two broadswords and went at it, or even two rapiers. There was either a long and a short blade involved, or both weapons were short. You have to know a lot of fighting technique to get the specific reasons the long-short or short-short combination is better, but the simple reason is that if you have two long weapons, it's a lot more likely the user will run them into each other. Even in movies when someone does happen to use two long weapons, they're usually holding each one off to the side of their bodies, and they do a lot of spinning to move one or the other in range for fighting. One of the more popular examples in modern media is from Game of Thrones in Season 6, where Sir Arthur Dane dual-wielded longswords. If you watch his fighting, just googling Arthur Dane will give you at least three YouTube hits right at the top, apart from when he intentionally crosses them to block, he always keeps them far away from one another, at one point even holding one sword behind his back to keep it out of the way. It's also worth mentioning that in that world he's considered possibly the best swordsman ever, with a short weapon or weapons in the mix, there's less chance the two will hit each other, and even if they do, it's much easier to recover. There's no way to reintroduce this concept to the D&D world without it being annoying for players. As mentioned, D&D rules in all editions make it much easier to learn two-weapon fighting as a character than it would in real life. However, if for some reason you find yourself playing in or running a campaign focused on realism, and a character shows up that effectively fights with two weapons, that should be a major clue that they're very well trained and very experienced. So, you still want to dual wield? Eh, I mean, swords, kind of a hassle. It's kind of made me realize something. Oh, good. What's that? I need firearms. Ooh, say no more. I know right where those are. Be right back. Re Ryu. Oh, God. Lenin, stop swinging that. Give me that. Fine. I mean, at least Rostro cares about my education. How did it put it? The probability you will injure yourself with this weapon is full of all sorts of math. Therefore, this will be a very educational experience for you. Well, it's not wrong. Here you go. When, I mean, if you injure yourself, I'll be over at the scrying pool seeing what our listeners have to say. What news from the north? Join us of Rohan! Message for you, sir. 
Last week we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, what are your thoughts on the Unearthed Arcana subclasses? Were you interested in the Wild Magic Barbarian? What would your monk's astral body take the form of? And did any of the revelations about Avernus change your opinion on the module? Do the new teasers make you want to pick up the book? And finally, what's your opinion on tying morality to game mechanics? Is it a good way to make moral decisions have an impact, or an annoying restriction on roleplay and character freedom? Dunderhill writes in, actually for episode 84 and on Discord, saying design-wise, XP, milestones, checkpoints, etc. are rewards for the players that they get in exchange for playing the game. They all end up being rough approximations of time spent playing a given character, assuming that they're playing the character in interesting ways. So I would just make it explicit. To level to second costs four hours of play, to level to third, fourth, and fifth cost eight hours of play each. Leveling beyond that costs maybe 12 hours of play. This would be easy to track online for Adventurers League games. The DM just posts the duration of the game and who played, and their hours are noted. And their characters level whenever they have enough hours logged. In my home games, we use milestones, but when I give milestones, a major consideration is always hours played. This system could even help address murder hoboism in games. If the reward is unhitched from killing monsters and taking their stuff, players will be able to do just whatever is fun for them at the time that they spend playing. You'd level at the same rate RPing with NPCs as you would delving into dungeons. This drifts D&D away from its design a bit, but is also in line with what a lot of players actually seem to enjoy about the game. Turkey Guy also wrote in on Discord again, partially for episode 84, to say I'd actually like to harken back to XP versus Milestone for a moment. I really think this is a consequence of the way the encounter building and CR systems end up impacting XP. Combats feel better to me if there are more than one enemy present, optimally about N or N plus 2 enemies, where N equals the number of PCs. But based on the encounter building charts, you have to increase the cost of an encounter if it has more of a weaker creature than if you have a stronger solo. So you don't increase the XP given to the players at all if you use a group. So as players level higher and higher, you end up with greater and greater mismatch between the XP cost of an encounter and the reward. And that's a drain when designing encounters, and it's a bummer when handing out experience. I often felt like I was cheating my party by sending a hard wave of baddies at them, then giving the actual experience value of those creatures. I think this leads to a situation where the GM feels the leveling drop down and start to drag, but wants to run more dynamic encounters. So Milestone lets people decouple that weak link and build whatever encounters they'd like without slowing the leveling. I did the exact same thing, but managed to keep the oh yeah, we got XP feeling for my players. Also, I really appreciated your reskinning section. It was very interesting and a good jolt to my creativity. Pretentious Latin name on Discord says, It surprised me quite a bit that there was no mention of the Wild Soul Barbarian's magic reserves feature. Restoring someone else's spell slots using a barbarian's beefy hit point pool seems to throw a giant monkey wrench into an otherwise carefully curated spellcasting system. Maybe Rostro would run the math more adequately than I could, but a wild soul barbarian could spend 10 HP to restore a second level spell slot to a cleric, who can then use it to cast Prayer of Healing and restore 2d8 plus whiz to the entire party. The average result with a 16 wisdom would be 12 hit points restored, and if the cleric is life domain or has a higher wisdom, it's even more, which means the barbarian regains everything they spent to restore the slot and more, and then the party also gets healed. Perhaps the fact that the barbarian has to roll a d4 to see what level slot they can restore balances it out. If the slot you're trying to restore is second level but you roll a 4, you're still taking 20 force damage. But it seems like a radical departure from the way spell slot resources have been allocated so far. It's cheesy, sure, but 5e has done a great job of mostly avoiding cheese. Looking at you, one-level Hexblade multiclass dips. And Sverfnebling Cav wrote in on Discord to say, So, Ryu was sick, huh? I think she just saw the word platable in the feedback and decided to take a week off. The good people at Heroes Rise have inspired me to create a new character using their reskinning idea. I'm thinking of playing an arse mage named Dave. <laughs> Dave will be a necromancy wizard, multi-class with druid, and his beast form will be a flatulent cow. The new insights into Avernus have me feeling conflicted. The mechanics of the setting are interesting and I'm curious to see how they work. However, it seems to me to be a very intense and miserable setting. I'm not really sure how much I'd enjoy being in hell. Shiv Panicular Bellhop wrote in on Discord to say what I don't like is the game or DM saying you can't do that, your alignment or class says no. Mostly all gone with 5th edition. Just like real life I'm typically good most of the time, but see human. 
What I do like is consequences in-game for making tough choices. Maybe my character has a really good reason to buy that thing with that coin for the greater good, but at what cost, personal or otherwise? I think Descent into Avernus to get the best result from it is going to require a solid grasp on what your character wants, because when it comes time to pay to get that, the real challenge is knowing if they are willing to pay the price. Indigo Spectre on Discord says, Morality and game mechanics are only interesting when they have consequences. Mechanics should facilitate gameplay, not hinder it. In a setting like Avernus, there is potential for real gameplay consequence that leads to story complications and problems. You're walking around with beings that can sense aptitude for good or evil. The value of morality is actual currency. It fits here, but it doesn't fit everywhere. Trying to mandate actions of a character based on morality is backwards. Actions influence the morality a character presents. That morality then has consequences. In a place like Avernus, those consequences are likely to stack before you can recover. And Stompius also writes in on Discord to say, I'm not usually a UA guy. I tend to wait for the official rules before I dive into a new character build, but this time is different. I've already got my wild magic barbarian rolled up and awaiting a future one-shot to try him out in. I've always loved reskinning in tabletop wargaming, as anyone who's seen some of my counts as Warhammer armies can attest to. I love the idea in D&D as well, it really opens up the creative opportunities. I'm actually working on something for the above-mentioned barbarian. And Carcer Floater Extraordinaire wrote in on Discord to say, I love that Avernus stuff. Creating horrible effects for simply being there is epic. Also, yoink. I will probably get this now for the setting guide. I wonder if D&D Beyond will sell the two sections separately. The morality question is a good one, but as others have said, there needs to be an effect at the end. I remember so many computer games that had a similar scale with little to no effect. It made you care about some stat pointlessly. As for the Unearthed Arcana stuff, the monk's astral body thing reminded me of Doctor Strange and some of his abilities. I'm sure that many people will enjoy that, however the barbarian that can explode is an absolute nightmare. I need it. I've already knocked up a nervous massive guy called Vrolf who is scared to do adventuring just in case he does some random thing. I love the random nature of the wild magic sorcerer and have already added him to my arsenal of NPCs. So quickly, does knocked up have a different connotation in Britain than it does in the US. <laughs> I hope um, so. Because <laughs> yeah. so, otherwise um, we need to ask Carcer some very pointed questions. Yeah, I mean, you know, if... How, how do I put this? Um, if, he, if he's into nervous massive guys in that way, that's entirely Carcer's personal decision and we should totally respect that. No, um, it means uh, to to draw up, to um, to draw the direct parallel to birth um if yeah. that's the sort of connotation you were going uh i realize that for you it's possibly the stage before that so yeah usually um, yeah no to knock up to quickly make you could you know you could knock up a spice rack if you've got a free afternoon okay um so <laughs> in more ways than one <laughs> um moving on if, if i may yeah um so yeah unfortunately the rostro couldn't be here so we managed to find ostron though um yeah, pretentious Latin name. Math, you, him, go. Yeah, so actually I I saw this beforehand and I did consult with Rostro. Apparently I took a nap in the middle, but I managed to get through the calculations before that. So uh, the specific situation he outlined here, um, a few clarifications for those who aren't as familiar. Prayer of Healing takes 10 minutes to cast. So I am assuming he is talking about a situation where you are out of combat and he's saying you use the barbarian to spend HP to give the spell slots to the cleric who uses the prayer of healing and restores health to the entire party. First problem with that is even with the slight boost that he mentioned with a higher wisdom score or a life cleric, the Barbarian is getting a much lower rate of return on the casts than the rest of the party, assuming you use average values and you're not just rolling everything. But even if you roll them in the long term, it averages out to the same thing. So the result is the rest of the party is going to get all their hit points back before the Barbarian does. And the Barbarian, even if you're using the Wild Soul variant is arguably one of your beefier characters who you're going to want to have 
most of their hit points back before, say, the wizard in the back rank or the rogue who's constantly hiding away from the battlefield. Now, the other thing on that is, as I said, 10-minute cast time on this, you're probably going to need more than one casting to restore the entire party's health, which means you're now up to 20 minutes to half an hour of standing around somewhere and casting spells. If you've found a location where you can spend that long doing it, you pretty much have found a location where you could take a short rest, because either way, the DM is looking at the same overall amount of time. So if you want to do all that rigmarole rather than just going for a straight short rest, it's fine, but it's not conceptually giving the party any particular ability it didn't have anyway. If you've got 20 minutes to hang around, you've probably got an hour to hang around. Now, the other option, or the other possibility, which he didn't explicitly mention, which is allowing the cleric to cast healing spells in the midst of combat, where they wouldn't ordinarily have the ability to regain spell slots, is technically possible. However, one, in order for it to work in the long term, you have to make sure that every healing spell the cleric casts also includes the Barbarian. Two, if the Barbarian is doing this, they can't be anywhere near the cleric using their rage, because most of the rages cause the Barbarian to do damage to creatures within a fairly liberal radius. Some of them go all the way out to 60 feet. Third, you're basically going to have to tell whatever player is playing the Barbarian that instead of being on the front line exploding and doing area effect damage to all the enemies, they have to not use one of the primary abilities of their class, hang out in either the second rank or possibly the back rank, and do absolutely nothing but feed the spellcaster spells using their own hit points. I don't know a lot of players who would build a Barbarian who are going to be on board with that strategy. Also, in general, it essentially means you're hamstringing the party from the point of action economy, because you're taking one of your characters and effectively removing them from the battle, because they're unable to spend their actions on doing anything other than giving the spellcaster one of their spell slots back. So yeah, I think you've covered the highs and lows of that hopefully pretentious latin name that's given you an answer there at least if not it's given you something to think about and you can write in again and we'll read it out next week yes after um what did you guys think of um dunderhill's time gated leveling for want of much better terms there we actually did something similar to that in tomb of annihilation we stopped really keeping track of what it was they had done. We never were using experience points to begin with. And it just got to the point where it's like, mm, I think they should have leveled by now. Yeah, let's let's tell them they leveled. So <laughs> that's pretty much what we got. To me, that sounds like the advancement checkpoint system, except without using the explicit counting that they did for the original one. Yeah. So it sounds like somebody was actually using that system. They just either didn't know it or didn't tell anybody. Yeah, I agree. I do like the idea of leveling up after X hours, but I feel that they're also, and again, DM's discretion, yada yada, but yeah, as long as they were actually not necessarily driving the story forward, but if you're, if you're literally just going to change your character's appearance for four hours, I probably wouldn't count that. But yeah, otherwise, I think that's a fairly solid system to go with there. And um, to answer Cass's question about will they include the separate sections on D&D Beyond, D&D um, Beyond probably not, but the DM's Guild does have a separate Waterdeep Enchiridion that you can buy rather than buying the whole of Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Um, it's $5.99, which uh, because of Brexit is about £35. <laughs> so um, you can pick that up over there and... Obviously, use that instead of a settings guide. Won't be integrated into D&D Beyond, though. I sort of understand what Shiv and Indigo were saying about morality and game mechanics, in that, basically, if I understood their position, they want 
the character's behavior to have effects on the world, like how NPCs might treat them. But they don't want any examples where somebody says, your character can't do that or they wouldn't do that because of the alignment. Which I sort of understand, but at the same time I feel like it's allowing a certain amount of lazy roleplay. Which some people may not care about, but to me, if you say you're trying to play a character that has a more extreme alignment, like lawful good or neutral good or lawful evil, and then you're going to complain when somebody calls you out for doing something that doesn't really conform to that alignment, then to me, that says that you weren't really invested in role-playing it to begin with. Now, I will agree that codifying in the rules that a particular alignment is not allowed to do something gets dicey, but I've more often seen the case where somebody says, oh, I'm going to play a lawful good character, and then they will get annoyed when somebody points out that a lawful good character would not behave in a way that they actually behaved. And it's not even an edge case. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you do have the edge cases there. And I think, depending on the type of player, sometimes if they step outside their morality boundary, for want of a much better term, that that could actually be a defining moment and a growth moment for the character that's involved. If it's something like, say, they're lawful good, but they end up... Um, torturing someone to get information out of them or something like that then that could actually feed into roleplay and they could feel conflicted about it and yeah maybe their alignment will start slipping as a result but again that relies on the player to drive that and not to just drive the initial torturing but to see the entire thing through to its natural conclusion which I'm not sure how many players do or would even want to do for that matter and in general feedback, Marty Chajoric on Patreon says, I do love a Kinder reference, especially when Lennon is the one bringing them up. Blah. I'm really surprised RPG Map 2 didn't get more love. I mean, I get it. But considering I really get excited about drawing dungeons on graph paper, that thing blew my mind. Ray Ray's dog is as guardian? Smiley face. Ah, heroes rise. Come for the D&D, stay for the girl from Ipanema, and Care Bear references. So if you've ever wondered what you miss out on by not subscribing to Patreon... It's me singing the Girl from Ipanema theme tune. Although I think that ended up in the bloopers, that didn't it? That was in the bloopers, it yes. It did. Yeah, yeah. If you it ever might have been wanted, abridged. It probably was, yeah. So if you ever wonder what you missed out on Patreon, it's full feature-length recordings of me humming the Girl from Ipanema. And that brings us to this week's community questions. What kind of dice are you using at your table? Fancy acrylic? Heavy metal? Do you have fancy gemstones rolling across the table? And most of the community had opinions on the Eberron announcement, so what are yours? Is the original cover a travesty, or are you okay with it? Which artificer subclass got the axe? And do you think Wizards of the Coast is doing a bunch of panicked backpedaling, or is this going according to their plan? Details on how you can get in touch, coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 86th entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 87th entry on September 4th, but before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com or by searching for us on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Stitcher. And if you like the sound of what we do, we're always looking for new adventurers to join the party, and all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in our show notes. No matter your passion, scribing, dungeon mastering, or audio alchemy, we're sure to have a spot at our table for you. Don't forget you can help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month, and you get access to raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, some Heroes Rise swag, and our new show Heroes Rise Dissonant Whispers, where we like to tackle the bigger topics of D&D. 
To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. If a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gaff Memvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, and our audio archivists, Mikey, Branwyn, and Tomasnees. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, Jonathan Hickman, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, and Randall Evans. Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com and Low of Lowe's Layer, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lowe's Layer. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. For the greater good. The greater good. A gazetteer for Sham, the city of towers. <laughs> uh, Sean, as is otherwise Sharn. known. Sharn. <laughs> okay, the R. Sham. And the yep. N together look like an M. Yes. Mm, that's that's <laughs> keeming for you. That's what for me? Don't worry. Stupid typography joke. The, the city is entirely populated by con men. Honestly, when you started laughing, my first thought was, what? I pronounced gazetteer correctly? No, Gazetteer was yeah. fine. To which Jeremy queeted. Queeted? Yeah. Queeted. <laughs> queeted, quote. Adam Bradford. Adam Bradford? Bradford. <laughs> Adam Bradford. <laughs> another thing. <clears throat> another thing universally true of dual wielding is that noble. Another thing universally true of dual wielding is that noble. Nah. Nobody? Yeah. It was usually them, but... Yeah. He always keeps them... Taki... <laughs> With a short weapon or weapons in the mix... Mm. Hush! Hey. Dog. Stop. Now I need to find my place on the... Uh, dog! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to the anonymous badger... <laughs> This is scrying pool Lennon sync one. Yeah, that is right. Yeah, that that stuff. Go. This is Ostron scrying pool sync two. This is that's the order. This is Ryu scrying pool sync three. And Lennon, as this segment is in three, two, and did and seeing I no, I have to start that whole over again, don't I? You have to start the whole over. Yep. Please. That does say so, but, doesn't it? It it does, but don't say that because that's yeah. weird. That's supposed to be no. That's no, that's a number. That's a, that's a three, Ostrom. <laughs> I I know how much you like algebra, but numbers and letters aren't interchangeable. In there. I almost like oh, I almost squeed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to do that on the floor. We've just had it polished. Is Ryu awake? Nope. Just kidding. Okay. Yes, I listened to the <laughs> whole thing. She wasn't to begin with, anyway. <laughs> she's gone. She's gone looking at dice again. Um, You're not wrong. Oh, I was totally on that site. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to touch on the morality stuff, or are we already too long? You can touch on the morality stuff if you. You can touch anything you like in the scrying pool, Ostrom. No, not gonna. Not gonna say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Didn't think that through.